The sermon text this morning is Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, most of us, uh, we love love stories. Uh, I mean, whether it's Jane Eyre or Pride and Prejudice or maybe something a little more modern in terms of you've got male or beauty. We just love seeing people devoted. You see the willing sacrifice that they make. You know, the, the, the devotion that they have, uh, it, it mesmerizes us. We want to be a part of it. We want to, we want to see it. We want to enjoy it. And, and today you see an incredible love story. You, you see this, this unique devotion of this woman to Jesus. Um, now, if you, if you weren't here uh, last week, we've stepped out of Genesis. We're doing this series on dining with Jesus, trying to trying to find the riddle of whether Jesus was a foodie or not. Well, not really, but, but we're looking at how Jesus explains his mission and his purpose through uh, the meals that he had with people. Now, I mentioned last week that um, some see kind of Jesus either leaving a meal, at a meal, or going to a meal through the Gospel of Luke. It's amazing how much ministry he does, how much he reveals about himself and his kingdom, as he sits around a table of food. You know, my goal is that all of us sit around a table with food. And we have family and friends together. And I'm hoping that we might see in the ministry of our Lord something that we might emulate, something that we might mimic, so that we are around the table with food, that we might also speak in redemptive and gracious 
ways with our family and friends. Now, you may ask, well, what happened to Genesis? Well, nothing happened with Genesis. Well, Genesis simply means beginnings, and so we are doing Genesis in pieces at the beginning of each year. So in 2022, we did chapters 1 through 11, the kind of the introduction to the book. As you know, this past January through uh, probably March, we did the life of Abraham. Lord willing, in 2024, we'll do Isaac and Jacob. And then in 2025, again, in the beginning of the year, we'll do the life of Joseph, taking us through all the chapters of Genesis. Uh, this year, we will finish up with this series in Dining with Jesus. We'll look at a, a long series through the summer in Psalms, pick up a New Testament epistle, and that will lead us all the way to Advent. So it's kind of the path that we're taking. Uh, but for our purposes today, let's get back around the table with Jesus. I, I want to see this act of devotion. I, I want us to be able to look at this unique dinner party that they had. It was really a tension-filled dinner party and try to understand the graciousness and the beauty of Jesus, that you might love him deeply, and that out of your love for him, your life is going to change. It's going gonna, it's gonna to become more and more like him. But there's, there's the tension that I want to point out. There's really three key players in this dinner party. <clears throat> there's, of course, the, the Pharisee, Simon. He's kind of, um, he's seen as holy and righteous and pure. He throws the party. You have Jesus. <clears throat> he is the guest of honor. And then you have this woman who crashes the party. And she crashes it and really sends it on its heels. But, but through these three different players, I want to look at each heart. I want to look at each person with you. And at the end of the sermon, then I'll try to make the points that he makes. Uh, so let's look first, because the woman I want you to think of as the penitent heart. She's the repentant heart. She's coming, confessing, right? She's coming, knowing that she's a sinner. You have Simon. Simon's the proud heart. He's the religious man. Life in order, understands. And then you have Jesus, the merciful heart. So let's look at each one. First, I want to look at the penitent heart. This woman, look with me at 36 to 38 again. He says, when one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that she, he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, uh, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wipe them with her hair of her head, kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So let me set the scene here for us. We don't know uh, where this is and what exact point in Jesus' ministry this has taken place. We do know that antagonism is building towards Jesus. A dislike is building towards Jesus. We don't know why Simon invited him, uh, invited him for dinner. It could have been notoriety to get a little claim of fame that Jesus has been. Maybe it was curiosity. We don't know. But we know that Jesus came. 
And this kind of party, I want to remind you, according to Eastern tradition, it would have been more in a courtyard. It wouldn't be in a home. It'd be more outside. Because when you would invite like a visiting dignitary or a rabbi, they would set the tables up in kind of the shape of a U. And, and that openness was so that the townspeople could come and listen in to the wisdom that this ra uh, visiting rabbi might give. And, and so there would be other players. It wasn't just Jesus and Simon. Now, to this party, though, came a woman. She's not named. <clears throat> we don't know what her name is. Uh, but we do know that she's a woman of the city who is a sinner, uh, which probably is teaching us that her sins were known among the city which probably leads us to see that she was a prostitute. She was known as a woman of the city, a prostitute. Now remember, uh, prostitutes were seen in the same way that tax collectors were seen. They were immoral. They were apostate. They were, they were far from God. right? They were, the, they were the type that you would look away from, that you would look down when they came, that you might whisper in hushed tones when they were near you. They were seen really as a spiritual leper and contagious. You got to avoid them. You got to stay away from them. Well, she's the woman that comes to the party. Now, folks, this would have been like shocking, right? Culturally, socially, in terms of religion. They did not mix coming to a Pharisee's house. They would have been aghast. In fact, in, in the literal translation of, of the Greek, it's, look, a woman. You know, can't you imagine you throw a party for all your religious friends? Just modernize it with me for a minute. And then some woman comes in, really short, tight skirt, low-cut blouse, stilettos, comes walking in. Everybody's like, Eesh. I mean, what's she doing here? Right? I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. It would kind of put you on your heels. That's what's happening here. But I want you to know why she came. You see it right in the text. When she learned Jesus was reclining at the table, she was looking for him. And we can see from the dramatic response of devotion, she had heard him preach. She had heard the gospel. Remember, Levi's just a couple chapters before. She would have heard him say that it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I reminded you what C.S. Lewis said. You don't have to convince a prostitute that their life is at the top of the game. They understand they need help. She would have heard Jesus say, I've not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. And she believed him. And she came. She had repented of her sins. Now you see this, right, in her actions. <clears throat> she comes and stands behind him. Now, at these dinner parties, you didn't have tables and chairs. Generally, there were lower tables. You'd recline. You'd lean back on your left arm. You'd eat with your right hand. Your feet were tucked behind you. The feet were the dirtiest part of your body, keeping them away from the table. And so she comes behind his feet, the dirtiest part of them. And she sees the one who had offered mercy and forgiveness. She heard and saw the one who said he has come from God to call sinners to be reconciled to God. And she begins to weep. You know how you feel when you've been in an absolute conflicted relationship 
Resolution comes. There's the relief. There's the joy. Oftentimes it comes with tears. Tears of joy. Thankfulness. And she begins to weep. And weep she does. Like a shower. Just the, those tears that sometimes they just stream so fast, one after another, that they begin to wet his feet. And then she gets down on her knees. And then she begins to undo her hair, uncover it, undo it, and begin to, to dry his feet. And his feet would have been filthy. Remember, Simon gave him none of these courtesies. So his feet were grimy, dirty with dust. And she begins to dry his feet with her hair. Now, for a woman, her hair was always covered because it was her glory. In fact, it was highly inappropriate, immodest for a woman to uncover her hair. You see that in Middle Eastern traditions even now to uncover her hair. In fact, some rabbis, for a woman to uncover and lower her hair before another man was worthy of divorce. It was equated with a woman bearing her breasts before a man, not her husband. That's the seriousness. This is, and this is in no way an erotic scene. But, but you would have begun to understand what Simon's thinking. But for her, it's pure devotion. She's drying his feet with her hair. And then she begins to kiss him. And in the tense of the form of the verb, she kept kissing him and kissing him and kissing him. These dirty feet, she's kissing them. And then she breaks open that, that perfume, this expensive perfume. She doesn't anoint his head. She's not worthy to do that. She just anoints his feet. Perfume begins to fill the courtyard. I mean, folks, this is pure worship. This is pure devotion. She has met the one who has come to reconcile her, her life that she couldn't reconcile herself. No way could she pull herself out of the sins that she had committed year after year. A prostitute giving your body for money? And yet one has come to give her the forgiveness that she could never have thought to receive. Can you imagine? She is overwhelmed with thankfulness and joy, expressing her gratitude. It's singular devotion. She's been washed. She's been clean. Her, the, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. She's been born anew. She's a new woman in a new kingdom. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I, I wonder if, if earlier in her years when she was learning of God, if she had heard that scripture in Isaiah 52, when he says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. I wonder, she says, this is the servant. This is a servant of Israel. It's one of the servant songs. He's come to bring good news, to, to proclaim good tidings, to preach peace. That's what he says to her at the end. Peace. Go in peace. Friends, this is the picture of a penitent sinner. When you hear this story and you hear me explain it, what do you think? How, how do you hit? How does it hit you? Do you squirm a little bit over this kind of over-the-top kind of expressions of devotion? Or do you envy her? Do you want that kind of devotion? I mean, you see a boldness to her. She doesn't care what they're thinking about her. She doesn't care what they're saying about her. She doesn't care about how they're judging her immodesty. 
from their standard of what's appropriate, she just loves them. She loves them and wants to worship them in front of everybody. She's not tempered when she's with people, a little more open and extravagant when she's in private. It's all there. I mean, it is singular, it is committed, it is devoted. Don't you want to kind of love him that way? If you're a Christian here and you begin to think about what he's done, doesn't this seem one who would lay down, who would come as Dalton prayed? He came, king of glory comes and takes on flesh, comes to dwell among us to save a people who cannot save themselves. And he's going to save them through his own death, suffering, resurrection. I mean, we, we love people that extend themselves to us. We love people that serve us. We love people that really go to great, great costs for us. But how much more, Jesus? I, I mean, she loves him. Do you love him this way? If you're a Christian, do you love him this way? Do you want to love him this way? What hinders your love? What are the distractions to your love? What are the things in life that, that sneak ahead of Jesus as more important? Maybe not cognitively, but, but at least practically. Is it work? Is it a relationship? What jumps ahead of that kind of devotion? What hinders it from you? that prevents you from doing this. You know, I ask you each year at the end of the year, do you love Jesus more? I don't ask you every week. It's hard to measure. It's like measuring a child growing up. It's, it's hard to measure. But, you know, with a child, it is deceptive because all of a sudden you see him. It's like, whoa, where'd you, where'd you just get two inches? Well, they, they haven't grown two inches the night before, but you just haven't perceived it. That's the way it is with the love of Jesus. It's an incremental growth. But, but have you seen a growth in your love for Christ? Friends, I don't want you to miss the importance of affections as being a calibration of your relationship. To what degree do you love him? This is an important question we have to ask ourselves. Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Asked him again, do you love me? He asked him a third time, do you love me? Friends, it's a question we need to ask ourselves because affections and love fuel our Christian faith. <clears throat> they fuel our obedience. They give us the energy to walk in faithfulness when we're tempted by the other things in life, to deny or to be dissuaded from following. A love of Christ is what energizes us. It changes us. J.C. Ryle wrote, there will never be more done for Christ until there is a hearty love to Christ. The fear of punishment, the desire of reward, the sense of duty, all useful arguments in their way to persuade men to holiness, but they are all weak and powerless until a man loves Christ. Once that mighty principle gets hold of a man, you will see his whole life change the heart must be engaged to Christ, or the hands will soon hang down. The affections must be enlisted into his service, or our obedience will soon stand still. It will always be the loving workman who will do the most in the Lord's vineyard. So, so friends, <clears throat> we look at the heart of this penitent woman. We see sinner through and through, but now repentant and cleansed. 
And she loves the one who has died for her. And that love is going to propel her to faithful service and faithfulness. Friends, let us, if you don't, if you're sitting right now thinking, I really don't have that love. Well, let, let us ask him. James warns us. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. Maybe right now it's been made known to you. Oh, I need more affections. Maybe, maybe you should, maybe I should have thought that. Well, that's okay. Ask him. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. So, so let's ask him. Let's be a church that loves him. Loves him like this woman. That our worship, if you feel like raising your, raise your hands. I mean, that we'll worship him with this singular devotion. And, and that, that it will move everything. All the other loves, all the other little shiny trinkets that are fighting for your attention. They'll all be moved to the side. Because you'll be so in love with the one who has come to die and to be raised and now is seated, interceding for you. Let's love him that way, like her. But notice that the devotion of this woman is held against the disdain of this, this Pharisee. Look with me at 39. In 39 he says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. That touching him is is often used in in a sensual context, in a sexual context. So in Simon's eyes, he's he's looking at Jesus, and it's like, boy, this is almost like this is almost an erotic act. That's how he's seeing him. You kind of begin to see, maybe it wasn't notoriety. Maybe it wasn't curiosity. Maybe Simon really was seeking to test him. He didn't do any of the courtesies that you would do for a normal guest. And he stands in judgment of Jesus. But notice Simon says to himself, see, he thinks he knows Jesus, but Jesus really knows him because Jesus knows what he's thinking. He might have gotten it right that she's a sinner. No doubt about that. But Jesus already knew that. Why? Because earlier in the chapter, we learned that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And friends of sinners know their sins. But he still loves her. He knows that she's coming repentant. But you see Simon here. He stands in judgment over Jesus. And he also stands in judgment over the woman. You see a harshness in his judgment. You see a condescension. You see a desire for avoidance, a better than them mentality. There's no rejoicing that the servant of Israel was to come and to set the captives free and to redeem the lost and to save the sinner. And here, one in in his own house is testifying. You know, we love conversions, don't we? Uh, When a sinner is saved, don't we rejoice? Their life was dark, and now they've seen the light, and we rejoice over that. Here, the work of the Messiah is bearing its fruit in his own house, and he's not rejoicing. He's judging, and he's looking down upon them. This kind of proud self-righteousness. Friends, how does this... Now, we looked at the penitent woman, and how do we react to her? What did it expose about her heart? You know, the Word of God is like a mirror. And we kind of read it, and we read ourselves by the word. And we hold ourselves to the, that's what he's doing here. This is the gracious thing about God. You know, he, he gives us his word 
So we can look at the woman and say, well, who am I in relationship to? We put ourselves in his stories. When you look at the heart of Simon, what does it expose about you? Uh, to what degree do you struggle with a sort of pride, a, a sort of condescension of others? Looking down, that's what pride does. Pride looks down on people. Uh, pride, pride seeks to evaluate people. Uh, pride, is, uh, pride thinks it understands other people and their motives and their actions and why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, uh, pride sees oneself as healthy and the others as sick. Uh, pride tends to look at our outward behavior and how we're obeying, but not really do that inward work of why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, pride is, uh, pride blinds us to our own sin. It, 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 it gives us just laser sharp vision and kind of x-ray vision on everyone else, uh, but we kind of go blind and really general. We tend to, what pride does is it allows me to justify my actions as warranted, given the situation, but find other people guilty of the same sins. Uh, this is the, the nature of pride. It blinds us to ourselves. That's what you see in Simon. Simon doesn't see Jesus for, for his messiahship that he's performing right in front of him. And he doesn't see this woman. He sees her as a sinner. Well, she's redeemed. Yeah, she has sinned, and she will sin, but now she's of a different order. She's been born again. He doesn't see that. It blinds us. And, and it even blinds us to the glory of Christ. Now, Simon, in defense of Simon, he at least respects Jesus to some degree. He's not as sharp uh, as other Pharisees. But let me remind you that respecting Jesus or even throwing him a couple attaboys for being kind or merciful, that doesn't equate to salvation. He may respect him, but he's not converted. And really, it's a good warning for us here. It's a good warning. You may have very lofty thoughts of Jesus, but if you don't see him as one who's come to save you, you don't get it. You don't see him. So respect is not conversion. High thoughts are not conversion. Now, I get, I get for Simon and for us, particularly for us who have been in the faith a long time, it can be hard to not struggle with self-righteousness. It can really be hard to not kind of succumb to this <clears throat> behaving more like Simon. It's hard to hear we're sinners. It's hard to hear that we are as bad as the prostitute, isn't it? I mean, clearly you think, no, 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 no not me. I don't need the Lord as much as they do. I mean, maybe at one point I needed more than I do now, but, but I'm, I moved along. It's hard to hear to be put in that same category. That's what he's doing with Simon here. You know, George Whitfield, of course, was a great itinerant preacher in the 18th century. He preached and sparked revival both in England and both in the United States, both in the Northeast and even down, in, down here in the South. He traveled, Georgia, preached. And, uh, uh, but, but he had the opportunity once to preach to the Blue Bloods, you know, in, in England. Uh, a friend of his who came to faith, actually, the Countess of Huntington, invited him to speak uh, to a friend of hers, a duchess. And so Whitfield went and preached the gospel to her. And, uh, and it would be in short order that the duchess would write to the Countess of Huntington. And she wrote these words. 
It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. And I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. She couldn't hear it. She could not hear that she might need a savior as great as all the other common wretches of this earth. This is the danger with pride. Pride is the mother of all sins. It gives birth to all of them. Pride will keep you from seeing your own brokenness. I, 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 part of the hardest work of evangelism is deconstruction. It's me trying to help them walk back from them thinking, no, I've got it decent right now, and to help move them back. It feels monstrous to people. This is the, this is the one mark of, of real conversion that I, I love to see. Self-initiated repentance. It just comes out of them. You know, I, I, I am. I'm lost. I'm broken. I, I need a Savior. And, and pride prevents us. So, folks, please, look at your souls. Take your own souls to task for a minute. To what degree do you struggle with pride? And if you're here today and you're, you're not a Christian, this is the mountain to climb. And you can't climb it alone. Jesus has to open your eyes to it, to see it. So, so we see this heart of the penitent woman, and she's held up against the heart of a proud man. But then we see the heart of a merciful Savior. Look with me at 40 to 43, he says, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he answered, and he said, say it, teacher. Certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, uh, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Uh, Simon answered, the one, I suppose, from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. So uh, I think the parable is fairly clear, right? The the two people owed uh, varying amounts of money to one moneylender. And in fact, the one had 10 times the debt that the other. Uh, but the common feature here is that neither could pay. They both were insolvent. They both were broke. So regardless of the value of the differences of debt, they both were in the same spot. And of course, you have the moneylender who moves with uh, a unilateral grace, forgives the debt. And then, of course, he poses the question, who will love him more? Now, notice that Jesus doesn't use the word sin. He, he grabs a word out of the financial world, debt. You, you know how like our, our national debt, you know, debt just tends to increase, right? It keeps going up. It, it's a very good picture that the longer I live, the more breath I take from God, the more gifts that I use that God's given to me, more the, the longer I live, kind of in defiance or ambivalence of God, my debt load keeps increasing, right? That's the kind of the picture here. And Simon knows he's the one with lesser debt. He knows she's the one with greater debt. He's getting that. He sees that the money lender is God, and God has to forgive both. What galls Simon is that he's put with her. It, it galls him that he is unable to pay. And that's the hardest thing. Just tell me what to do, Tom. Just tell me what I, what I have to do to be a Christian. Just give me more things to do. He doesn't get that though his debt may be lower in, in quantity, he has no greater ability to pay. And for a righteous person, this is difficult. 
difficult to be seen that they can't save themselves. It's foolishness to the, to the Greeks, and it's scandalous to the Jew. I, I just can't see that I'm that bad. That's what he's pointing out to him. But you've got to realize that coming to God, becoming a Christian, it isn't like a game of horseshoes where you throw it and the closest one wins. It's like a ravine that you're trying to cross. It's 50 feet across. You may be in much better shape than I. I can only jump five feet across. Perhaps you're far better than I am. Maybe you can make a 25. You're unique. You make a 25. Guess what? You're not making it. Neither are. Both fall short. This is Paul's point when he says there is no difference in Romans 3. There is no difference. He's speaking about the Jews or the Greeks. He says, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have. This is what we need. We need this Messiah to come. And this is what he's driving home to Simon. Do you see, Jesus is kind of inviting Simon to believe. Even the mercy of God is being displayed through this. To come to see, Simon, you need me just like her. Every one of us in here. And many of us have quantities of sin far greater than others. We all need him the same, though. That, that's what brings a humility to us. You know, Charles Colson, he was a former aide of President Nixon. Many of you know the name. Perhaps you've read his book, uh, Born Again. He was the hatchet man. He was, he was kind of the guy behind the scenes, pushing buttons and turning dials and moving levers. Well, of course, he ended up in the Watergate scandal and was thrown in jail. And, but he came to faith. And here's what he writes. He says, that night when I sat alone in my car, my own sin, not just dirty politics, but the hatred and evil so deep in me was thrust before my eyes forcefully and painfully. For the first time in my life, I felt unclean. Worst of all, I could not escape. In those moments of clarity, I found myself driven irresistibly into the arms of the living God. That's what we have to come to, friends. This is the beginning of the Christian life. When we begin to understand, oh, I can't just separate from sin. Because it goes with me, right? I can separate. It's going to go with me. Because I've been born in sin. And by nature, I said, I, I need to be made new. And I need a Messiah to make me new. This is, this is what we see here. Now, Christianity isn't about changing the way you think about life. It involves that. But, but it's more than that. It's a, it's a regeneration. It's a taking out a heart of stone and putting a new heart that now loves the one who has died. It doesn't see him as a helper to get me to God. No, he's carrying me to him. He's carrying me to him. So you see, you see a heart of a penitent woman. You see the heart of a proud man. And yet between them stands the heart of a merciful Savior. It looks like the three crosses, doesn't it? One appealing, one mocking, and yet he stands between them saving that's what he, that, that's Jesus. He saves us. He comes to forgive us of our sins. So what do you do? What do you do with this? So, so look with me at 44 to the end. Because he applies it. He says, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. You notice that? He turns to the woman because he loves her. And he values her. And he looks at her. But he's talking to Simon. 
And he says, do you see this woman? He didn't see her because the pride don't see others. They only see themselves. He says, do you see the woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I've come, she has not stopped. She has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my head with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. He isn't rebuking Simon. I think he's pleading with him. He's trying to explain what this religious leader doesn't see. He doesn't sweep under the rug her sins. Jesus says her sins are many. But remember, he's come to save us sinners. We just got to get it. And, and he said, she, for she loved much. Don't see that as a basis for her forgiveness. Because you see he who loves little, or he who is sin little, loves little. No, he, he's saying that, that her, her much, her love, was the result of her forgiveness. It was proof of her forgiveness. It's the evidence that she understands she's been forgiven. But he's pleading with Simon. Those who, love, those who sin little, love little. It's this appeal to us to love much. When you begin to understand, you know, so John Owen was a great theologian in the 16th century, and he says, he that has slight thoughts of God will never, or excuse me, he that has slight thoughts of sin will never have great thoughts of God. So when we begin to understand the nature of our sin, then we really get to see who the greatness of God is. Friends, we, he is, I think, he is afflicting the comforted. Simon was comforted in his righteousness. Jesus is afflicting him. But then notice what happens at the end. He speaks to the woman. Look with me at the end there. He says, and he said to her, so now he's going to comfort the afflicted. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Isn't it merciful? Jesus is saying, your sins are forgiven. He reassures her. He wasn't solicited. He didn't have to say it. He said it as a reassurance. Your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine the balm on her soul? Living a life of prostitution. And the very Messiah that's come to save says, you, you are forgiven. I mean, just the peace, the peace that will come to us. That's why he says your faith has saved you. Now remember, faith doesn't save. Jesus Christ saves. Faith is the means by which we come. It's a trust. I trust that Jesus is the Messiah who will bear my sin and shame and guilt. He will suffer the wrath of God over my sins. It's my faith that draws me to him. My faith doesn't save me. He saves me. That's why Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, things will happen beyond imagination. Faith is just the means we come to him. But then Jesus says, go in peace. Uh, this is a peace. Not that she wouldn't have conflict in the rest of her life. It, it's a peace that now you are at peace with God. You have shalom. Shalom is a wholeness to life. That circumstances may vary, but there is a settledness 
there is a comfort. There's a peace I have with God that neither life nor death, nor angels nor demons, nor things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a peace. Nothing will separate me from the creator of all things who loves me. This is the kind of peace. Friends, do you have this kind of love for Jesus? It's a good test of faith. Do I love him? Am I growing in love? Have you been forgiven much? Have you been forgiven little? Do you see Jesus has great capacity to, sin, to save us from our sin? You know, you may think you're the worst of sinners. But I'll remind you that this story teaches us the worst of sinners can be the best of saints when they begin to understand how much he's free. They can become the best of saints. Even though they've had the worst history with the Lord, they can become the best because of Christ. And it really leads us to the table as we consider the bread and the cup, doesn't it? I mean, when you think about it, here's what, here's what I was struck by. That initial audience, they said, who is this? Who goes around forgiving sins? We sin all sin against God. Who is this who comes and says, he can forgive sins? Well, it's the one who will die for our sins. That's who gets to do it, right? It's the one who pays the price. Hey, the debtor that forgives the debts, that guy takes it on. He takes the hit. He's not getting his money back. You know, so forgiveness isn't cheap. It costs the one who forgives. And Jesus has come to bring the forgiveness, and he's come to do it. By hanging on a tree. And that's in accordance with Genesis 3. He is going to bear the curse that God brought forth for our sin. So that we can come back into the same fellowship with God. So Jesus has authority. So when we come to this table, we come aware of our sins. And I want you to think about that. Because though her sins are many, think about our sins. I mean, think about the lust, the anger, the greed, the bitterness the envy, the hatred, the murder, the adultery, the thieving, the gluttony, the drinking. I mean, think about our sins. I mean, they are all over the map. And yet one has come to be able to say, your sins are forgiven. Friends, I want when you come to the table, I want you to hear him say to you, your sins are forgiven. Because the one who has the authority to say it has laid down his life. That's what you see in the broken body. That's what you see in the, in the shed blood. Remember, communion is not, it's not for the perfect. It's for the penitent. It's not for the proud. It's for the, it's for the humble. It's not for the strong. It's for the weak. It's not for the healthy. It's for the sick. It's not for the righteous. It's for the sinner. Those who understand it. But I want you today... When you come up, I want you to feel the gravity. Who is this who says it? It's the one who will die. So, so this isn't some kind of Pollyanna pronouncement of forgiveness. The one whose blood was shed and body broken said, you are forgiven. Go in peace, friends. We ought to be a people. We leave the table. If you've seen Les Mis, you know, and you see that great movie, 
you know, and, and the, the version that Carol and I saw with Liam Nielsen, uh, probably mispronounced it. Yeah, thanks. Should have checked with you before I preached. I'm not a TV guy. But you see the whole movie, he never smiles. He never smiles. Not once. In the final scene, he smiles. And it's when, it's when the officer throws himself in. Uh, sin is being atoned for. He knows he's forgiven. He knows his debts are paid. And he leaves smiling. He leave, he's smiling because the sin has been atoned for. It's been paid. He's now freed. And that's what we are. So let's take a moment now and just ask God to open our eyes to the beauty of this Savior that our love and our affections might grow. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.